welcome to the Transparency Project on the Inside Lens Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin, and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Good morning, Delilah. Good morning, Denny. Um, I just want to give a quick plug for the Inside Millions Network and let everyone know that this is um, a huge collection of podcasts that go back, you know, 700 episodes. So there is something for everyone to listen to. Most of them are very issue oriented. So that's that's something to binge on. Um, I just also want people to know that some of the podcasts on the Inside Lens Network highlight criminal cases, and some are still open investigations. So it's our intent to allow families to present information for consideration by listeners. We don't, you know, we don't solve cases. We don't represent the guests, uh, nor, you know, we don't want to jeopardize open investigation. So our guests present their own information. And while we might suggest some resources and some assistance, we're not liable for their subsequent actions. So that's that. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, we, we, our intent is to provide a platform uh, for families to, uh, to tell the stories as, from right. their perspective. And, of course, uh, sometimes we'll branch off into that uh, to discussions such as we're going to have in a few minutes that uh, that go beyond just talking about a case but talking about uh, possible initiatives or things families can do to help move their cases along, as you mentioned. Right. In March and I think, 2012 uh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead, dear. No, go right ahead, Denny. In March 2012, Carbondale, Illinois resident Molly Young died of a gunshot wound to her head. Her father, Larry Young, has fought for several years demanding information from Carbondale Police, Illinois State Police, and others in the investigation into his daughter's death. Young believed victims' families deserved better and launched an effort that resulted in Molly's Law being signed by Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner in July 2016. The law went into effect on January 1, 2017. Larry Young is with us today to discuss his daughter's case what Molly's Law does, and what it took to get it enacted. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Denny. Uh, now, we're going to be talking today, obviously, we want you to uh, present the uh, the basics of the case, and then we really want to uh, focus on your efforts to get Molly's law enacted and uh, what it what it does uh, and what it took you to get there uh, because we have people from all over the country uh, families who are in situations that that you've been through uh, regarding the death of a loved one and trying to get information and finding out they were uh, a little late doing this or couldn't do that and in many cases, I think uh, changes in legislation 
in the laws may be an appropriate step to take to help resolve some of the issues and some of the things that have happened. And, and it, it might even be too late in some cases, you know, for a change in the law to do any good. But uh, these are things that could help people in the future that uh, that are suddenly find themselves stuck in this situation. So um, to, let's begin, Larry, by talking a little bit about your daughter and what was going on in her life in 2012. Well, uh, Molly was uh, the youngest of my three daughters, and uh, she was a talented artist and photographer, and she wrote poetry and short stories, and uh, she even received a, an award at Carnegie Hall uh, for her uh, photograph she took, and they uh, chose it to hang on the U.S. Department of Education's wall for a year after that. Uh, she received a letter from Barack Obama uh, congratulating her, a personal letter, because she was the only one in the whole state of Illinois that uh, got that award. Uh, she, uh, we, uh, each year we give a scholarship in her name from the Molly Young Memorial Foundation. Uh, we have for the past five years since her death uh, to the school where she was mentored on, in her photography and art in Marion, Illinois. Uh, first, uh, that particular day of her death, she was supposed to start her first day at Victoria's Secret on the sales floor. She had went through training, and in fact, on one of the voicemails, her manager, the the store is uh, asking what where she's at. And uh, to start, go backtrack a little. Uh, uh, she had a thyroid operation in January of 2011 that caused her to drop out of. Southern Illinois University, to, they removed half of her thyroid. And uh, she was trying to get back in school when this happened. Uh, I'd, in fact, I'd been over there as late as January and trying to get her readmitted. And she was majoring in photojournalism, a uh, sophomore. Uh, she had moved out of her, she had lived in a house with another woman and uh her uh as a as a step like a stepping point she moved in with her grandmother three weeks prior to this happening and was looking for an apartment at the time that of her death. Uh, her relationship with her ex boyfriend was toxic and uh back and forth uh, they'd break up, they'd get back together, break up, get back together. But the final, about a week before this happened, she finally made the move and decided to cut it off for good because she was uh, her. Uh, she had went to a counselor over him, and the counselor told her to to uh, get away from him. Uh, and her mother did, and her grandmother, and I did, and every, all her family did. And so she had what small stuff she had over to his apartment. She went and got those without him present because she knew it'd be a problem. So she got all of her stuff out of the apartment. And somehow at 3 a.m. in the morning, he convinced her to come over, but with the texting of help me, help me. And uh, he talked to her for 26 minutes. We know of three different phone calls between 3 and 3.30 that morning. So we don't know what he did to get her, lure her over there but he did. So then 
she was found shot in the top of the head on the left side the next day in his apartment next to his bed, and he said he slept through the gunshot. Uh, we went to the police station that morning, and I met a lieutenant from the Illinois State Police, and he told us that the Carbondale police botched the case. They let him wash his hands and change clothes at the scene, and he's not cooperating. He refuses to be interviewed, and he refuses to give consent to search anything, his apartment, his car, or anything. Uh, and he was supposed to have been at work at 7 a.m., and the 911 calls at 9 a.m., and he didn't call in. He didn't, uh, uh, you know, tell him he, he was going to be late for work or any of that. So that's what we learned the day it happened. So then we went through I, a long – go ahead. I was just going to ask, what, what did the police tell you they felt the uh, <clears throat> cause of death was? Did they have an opinion at that point? Well, the the inter-office emails we have at 10.16 a.m., uh, uh, the blood analysis expert sent to his boss that we're treating this as a homicide because he is lawyered up and without doing any interview or providing any information. So they, and I misspoke, I should have said the manner of death, not the cause of death. Um, so at that point, at least initially, they were looking at this as a, a possible homicide. Well, part of the problem was on the manner of death and the cause of death. The cause of death, uh, the ex-boyfriend reported it on the 911 call as a drug overdose. And there was an obvious gunshot wound and uh, to the top of the head. And uh, so the state police weren't allowed in the scene due to the fact he refused to give consent to search his apartment. It took him seven hours to get search warrants signed. So at the point in time I'm talking to this lieutenant, he has never been in the scene. I don't even know if he knew whether it was a gunshot wound or not at that point in time. <clears throat> but since then, uh, extensive investigation has been done. We have like 30 CDs and and uh, 2,000 pages of documents that we've received through uh, FOIA. And uh, there's 19 lab tests were done, all proving or disproving suicide. They all, you know, no fingerprints on the gun, no gunpowder residue on her hands, no blood on her hands. Uh, all the evidence points toward homicide. So obviously they did an investigation for the for the next eight months. Uh, which actually proved homicide, you know, instead of, I don't know if they did it to disprove or to, to prove suicide and then the process proved homicide. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, then a coroner's inquest was held 10 months later. And in the coroner's inquest, uh, they didn't present these 19 lab tests. They didn't present a lot of the evidence that they had uh, obtained and only presented mainly Molly's journals from eight years prior up till nine months before it happened, which they found in her car because she had been moving from her house to her grandmother's house. And uh, so they uh, presented that evidence, but we were allowed to ask three questions to the investigators. And one of them was trajectory because they didn't tell the jury the trajectory. Uh, uh, he he had posted a quote from the son of Sam three weeks prior to this, the day that Molly found out she was pregnant. Uh, he posted a quote 
from the son of Sam saying, drops a letter pour down upon her head until she's dead. Uh, I, uh, all that wasn't ever told the jury. Uh, the jury was not told it was on the left side and she's right-handed. So we got to ask those three questions. And we had many more. We had 30 questions to ask, but we were not allowed to ask them. So that that's well, Larry, the way the inquest went, and they ruled undetermined. Uh, Larry, it, it just seems like, you know, it, it's so obvious. What do, Can you give us a brief background on this boyfriend? What kind of a guy was he? What sort of family did he come from? What was he into? Anything like that? Well, he's a uh, He was a Carbondale police dispatcher when this happened, and he was supposed to be at work at 7 a.m., like I said previously. And his father is a forensic computer expert in a uh, uh, from a county that's about 30 miles away. Uh, his mother was a supervisor of police dispatchers in a town about 30 miles away in the same county. His father's the deputy sheriff. Uh, he, he was given a, uh, I guess, because of the inter, the inter-office emails between his father and some of the investigators that we now have through FOIA, uh, we have to question what he's doing communicating with the investigators during his son's investigation. Uh, the, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, I don't, I don't know the, you know what, I don't know what else I can add to that other than. Well, so basically, you know, he came from a family with a lot of police background and he was also, you know, which I would think with the expertise that he has and his family has, I mean, they know how to, they know what to do when a crime's been committed. Well, that's one avenue that's never been investigated yet fully. And uh, that's that's a real problem in this case is staging a crime scene electronically, not only electronically, but physically. And uh, Molly's body was moved twice uh, right after she was shot. And she, the time of death was 4 a.m. and the 911 calls at 9.02. So we have to question what went on. And you've not, not been given any it. answers as to what went on in that time well, frame, right? Someone deleted the text messaging out of Molly's phone, and they deleted text messaging out of his phone. Uh, there's no text messages in his phone prior to this incident. There's uh, one text message in January, but between January and March the 24th, the day it happened, there's no text messaging. Uh, there's also... The dispatcher on duty, who was his coworker, deleted her text messaging. Trying to do, a, she was trying to do a wellness check on him because he didn't show up for work. She said she put in her own report that she deleted her own text messaging to him. Was she told to do that, or she just did it on her own? She put it. In, she said she didn't know she was going to be have to write this report, so she went ahead and deleted him. That she wrote the report the same day mm-hmm. that it happened. We don't Larry, know if he was told to. Do you know, Larry, yes. by chance, what, what the dispatcher's training consists of or consisted of when the boyfriend, the ex-boyfriend, was hired? I, I'm wondering, uh, for example, in New York here, 
the county I was I worked in, uh, new dispatchers, even though they were civilians, they had to be they were, had to go through a training uh, session of, of three weeks in our county. Other counties required longer, um, and they had to learn police procedures, uh, the penal law codes, and so forth. So they got, even though they weren't sworn officers, they got a lot of police-type training before they were uh, put in the 911 center. Um, do you know what type of training the boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, would have received? No, I don't. No. Okay. I, I'm just thinking uh, it would be interesting to see what his knowledge consisted of. Uh, as far as form, obviously he would have, you know, could have gotten input from his uh, from his father and, uh, you know, as a deputy and so forth. But uh, I'm just curious uh, as to what his training consisted of and wh- how that, uh, you know, may have uh, had any influence or impact on his conduct and knowledge of, uh, of, of what to do or say at, uh, well, at that particular time. One of the big questions right off the bat was, and we didn't find this out for, we, there's several things that happened. We did not get a, any written documentation or even let, get to hear the 911 call for 15 months. They wouldn't give it to the news media or anybody because he had called it in as a drug overdose. On a, and it's, if you listen to 911 call, you'll see how calm he is when he's, order, when he's talking on that 911 call. And I, uh, I, what I don't understand is uh, why they would not release the 911 call immediately so that the public could see what was, you know, what transpired there. So how I found out about the 911 calls, a reporter had a recording of the police uh, scanners that morning, and I still have that recording, uh, that the ambulance drivers were saying that uh, this is not a drug overdose, this is a, a gunshot wound. And so when I questioned that, they wanted to know, instead of wanting to know what the tape, you know, listen to the recording, they wanted to know how I knew that. They wanted to know, you know, and that's what bothers me is, you know, if you do your own investigation and you find a valuable evidence, then I would think that uh, uh, the state's attorney would want to have that evidence. Uh, not only that, that evidence showed there was no police transmission between 7 and 7.30 when he was supposed to be at work. There's no chatter going on at all on the public uh, uh, police scanner and also between 8.45 and 9.15. And this 911 call happened at 9.02. So where did, what line did they go on to discuss this case at that point in time? You know, and no one's ever investigated that avenue of it, uh, you know, and that's the problem. The issue really is that, that is, yeah, a 33-year sergeant as a first responding officer, third, I mean, 30-year sergeant that was the first responding officer to the scene, and he let him go in the bathroom and wash his clothes, and I mean, change his clothes and wash his hands unaided. Nobody stood there and observed him. He put it in his own report. So how could someone that's a 30-year veteran of the police department allow that to happen unless he was doing it on purpose? Uh, 
this uh, we'll, we'll check with Delilah in a minute to see what her impression is. Uh, mine, uh, it, it's really tough for me to understand how something like this happens. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm very pro law enforcement, and but I have found, especially over the last few years, in the last several years, that. Uh, police officers are human beings, and when you're dealing with human beings, you don't always get 100% uh, quality. Sometimes people get through the screening process and so forth, and for whatever reason, uh, a family, I, I think when they're dealing with this type of situation, can't just assume, like maybe I did years ago, that you know, when you had a cop involved, that that was it. You didn't really have to do anything because they were going to do it all and they were going to do it right. Uh, I don't think that's true. Obviously, not in every case. And what you're telling us here today, uh, I think, is one of those situations where it's very tough to uh, support uh, what's happened uh, to you. Well, here's the and, question. The bigger looming question, though, is. His, uh, the police chief at the time was he later got fired because of these cases is what he says. Uh, the police chief at the time uh, he was asked on a public uh, national TV show recently, uh, did he and order any kind of internal investigation or did he do any disciplinary action to this uh, sergeant that allowed him to wash his hands? And he said no. You know, you can say one thing, you made a mistake, but then there's a, there's a, there's also should be a, a disciplinary action when you make a major mistake like that. You know, if there's no internal investigation and no uh, and no disciplinary action taken, then what's it accomplished? It's saying, okay, go ahead and do it. Whatever you want to do, we'll let you do it. Well, it's it's kind of ironic because nationally today there are things going on that involve accountability and and people seemingly able to do whatever they want and they're never held accountable for it and and like you say that certainly if, if the this 30 year veteran um, uh, made the mistake then there should have been some accountability uh, uh you know again i don't understand how these things are allowed to happen like this and and uh and there's no uh, uh, punishment, uh, even if it's a short suspension, whatever. But there's something, something needs to be done. Um, Delilah, before we move on, uh, do you have any comments about uh, what you've heard so far? I do. I do. I think, you know, Denny, we hear so many of these cases, and with uh, being looking at this objectively and just hearing what I'm hearing and knowing very little about the facts of the case, but exactly, you know, on, and I'm assuming everything that Larry's telling us is, is provable. How, why is it so obvious to us out here and yet not obvious to the people who are investiga- investigating the case? That just always blows my mind, and this, this is not the first time it's happened. I, I mean, it's it's too obvious to me. Obviously, she was not 
a drug overdose, and that became very obvious as soon as as EMTs were allowed or the police were allowed in the house. It's obvious that somehow or another he covered everything up, and very very possibly is the culprit here. It, it seems it you know it almost looks like Bing 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 all the ducks are in a row and if it's if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's usually the duck. So why give well, these families so much you know so much so many obstacles to overcome to get to the truth? Uh, you know, Larry mentioned. Go ahead. Uh, you mentioned uh, 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 a few minutes ago about the uh, the chatter or uh, and so forth and the lack of uh, during the some of the time frames, and I recall that in our dispatch arrangement everything was recorded, and I think they were allowed to reuse the tapes after thirty days. I, I, that that. I think that's what it was, but everything was recorded, the telephone lines and the dispatch lines. So at, if it, you know, early enough, and I don't know what, again, what their system was at that time, but that's, that kind of information was probably available at least for a while. Uh, now, whether those tapes or the tapes from that day were pulled out of the rotation or were allowed to be recorded over, you know, I have no idea, but uh, there should have been some evidence available that uh, not necessarily at that early point you would have known about or uh, questioned, but investigators certainly should have known you know, if, if there was a recording system, they would have been aware of that and could have taken some action to review the tape uh, or or pull it out of rotation if they were re- recorded over after a certain time, pull it out of the rotation uh, and, and save it uh, until such time as it was determined there was no need to listen to it. Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I think helping people with wrongful death. I, uh, I, I want to get off on my my case, but I think helping people with wrongful death that are listening might be, you know, the wrongful death lawsuit. And uh, we did file a wrongful death lawsuit after we obtained the uh, enough records to determine there was evidence of wrongful death. You know, we couldn't go in, he said, she said, this, you know, you can't go in a courtroom like that. And all, and they know that. And I think the issues, if I'm going to really get to the issues of wrongful death, number one is when there's a person working for a public body in the county that it happened, it needs to be an automatic change of venue, which it isn't. We couldn't get it out of that county. And so when we went, <clears throat> we filed the wrongful death suit uh, three months after the two-year statute of limitations expired because that's when we received the records to have enough evidence to fight it. We didn't file, most people don't file wrongful death suits in order to get monetary gain. They file them to get to the truth, to depose people, to get the facts. And uh, so 
after we started getting all the facts, uh, we went through a two-year battle with the wrongful death suit. By the time we got to the final end of the two battle, we had most of the records we were wanting to get in the first place because we're battling through FOIA at the same time. So we, whenever you follow a wrongful death suit and there's a statute of limitations, which I don't believe there should be a statute of limitations uh, on a, a murder case because when there's a, a violent death involved, a suspicious violent death, there should be no statute of limitations on, on uh, wrongful death. When you, we got into case law, there was no case law supporting any argument of wrongful death for a murder because mo- normally the prosecutor is the one that handles that. So you get into a tricky situation because wrongful death is a blanket statute that covers uh, mostly uh, medical malpractice, uh, car wrecks, stuff like that. There was no case law to support an argument in a wrongful death on a murder or a violent death. So you're going, you're, you're, you're in an unprecedented territory and unless your state happened to have that. I mean, some states may have already fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. I don't know. So we were up against that wall to begin with. And then the next uh, wall was in a wrongful death, you can extend the statute of limitations by equitable tolling or fraudulent concealment. So we argued both of those, our, our attorney argued both of those, and they wouldn't accept those because uh, we we had no records. We couldn't argue it, you know, early. We couldn't follow the suit with no records because then you'd never, you'd never win. And we didn't want to go into a wrongful death suit without proof and and then have that lose that case. So we never got heard. We never were able to get heard because of statute of limitations. And... Uh, so we uh, appealed it, and still they would not accept the equitable tolling argument or the fraudulent concealment ar- argument. Uh, then we went to a, a congressperson, uh, a woman that had, was a, just got newly elected. Never, she's from that district, not our representative. She wasn't our representative. You know, my family or any most of my family lives outside that district. And she decided she would take that on. She would try to get us some sort of justice because we were not, we did not get any justice. So she pled the case, wrote the law. I give her my input. And it, she, she, it had to be two parts. Number one is in order to file wrongful death, you need to be able to get results from the FOIA Act, Freedom of Information Act. So she had to separate it because it's two part, two different laws two different sections of the statutes. So she separated it and made stronger penalties for people denying records, public bodies denying the records. And I want to, I'm going to make sure people listening understand records versus documents, because that's where I messed up to begin with. I asked for documents. Well, documents is a small part of records. Records is video interviews, video surveillance, video, a lot of uh, the 911 call, all that is, it's part of a record, but it's not a document. A document's a more of a paper type thing, a report, police report. So they understand when they FOIA the records, they don't get off on the word document because that's how they got me to begin with. And, and it took me a lot longer to accomplish anything because I was saying documents. 
anyway, FOIA it goes hand in hand with wrongful death. In order to fight wrongful death, you have to have FOIA the records because if they don't readily give them to you, which they normally don't in an open case or or an active and ongoing investigation, then you have to have that in order to fight wrongful death. Well, by the time you get that, you go through a year or two process, you've surpassed the statute of limitations on wrongful death, and therefore you got to argue the equitable tolling. And if they don't accept equitable tolling or fraudulent concealment, which is five years, then then you can't you can't get anywhere. And uh, uh, it cost it cost $10,000 to do the wrongful death suit, and we never got past the hearing. And we never even got to get our case heard in court. Uh, uh, Larry, I think this is a good uh, spot to uh, to mention that uh, you have been you have generously agreed to help other people out there with uh, with what you went through with, with the the uh, steps, if you will, to to try to get legislation passed and. Uh, Please now tell us how you would like people, if they have questions or would like to consult with you, uh, how they can reach you, what your preference is. Well, uh, we have a Justice for Molly Facebook page. Uh, they can private message me on there, or they can go to my personal page and private message me. Uh, uh, we have uh, the Facebook page has 26,000 members plus, and uh it's growing all the time. Uh, we, uh, there are supporters from all around the world. Uh, we've been, had that Facebook page for about five years. So, uh, I, uh, I don't know how, uh, that's really the main way I would suggest, uh, to contact me through private message on Facebook because this is a pub, you know, a national program and I, I can't give out my phone number. So, yeah, uh, uh, let me say also, if uh, for members of the Transparency Project, uh, they could find uh, a, a private message you through there as well. So uh, I encourage any listeners who are, would like to pursue uh, getting something done legislatively to uh, to take Larry up on his offer to uh, to assist them and, uh, and and give his guidance. Okay, Larry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to get that out there. So uh, hopefully, some people will will contact you and uh, and ask for your help in these uh, in their attempts to get uh, legislation enacted that might help them. And if it's too late for them to uh, to benefit from it, at least get something in place to help people in the future who are in these types of situations. So uh, please go ahead then. You were telling us about that you had contacted uh, the legislature and you, the woman uh, uh, agreed and, and got uh, got the legislation written up and there were two parts to it and I think that's where I cut you off. Uh, the, the woman is Terry Bryant, Representative Terry Bryant, and she uh, actually represents the district that Carbondale's in. I don't live in that district. Uh, she, uh, 
uh, went through a year-long process of getting law, this law, these two laws written on the FOIA Act and the Wrongful Death Act. She combined them first, and, they, and then they came back and said they had to be separated. So she separated them, and uh, we didn't go. We didn't go there to try to get it named Molly's Law. I just wanted to help other people, and she decided to put the Molly's Law on it. I didn't do that part. I didn't even expect it. I was shocked when they did it. But uh, in the process, my initial proposal on that law was that there would be no statute of limitations on official misconduct. It's right now two years. There would be no statute of limitations on official misconduct when there's a violent death involved. That was my simple request to begin with. Well, as as time went by, as, as everybody knows, that gets changed and uh, based on everybody's input in the Senate and Cong and House of Representatives. So, it was changed to uh, wrongful death, extending the statute of limitations from two to five years, and then one year after a trial, whether there was a guilty or not guilty verdict in the trial. Uh, then FOIA Act was changed to put a lot stronger penalties on people that, uh, on public bodies that uh, refused to uh, respect uh, a court order or a binding opinion by the attorney general's office. There's a 30, uh, there's up from 5,000 to $10,000 fine. And then $1,000 a day, every day after the, until they produce the records. Uh, it passed unanimous in the house and it passed unanimous in the Senate and the governor came to Carbondale to sign the bill. Uh, my, if I propose laws that need to really change, uh, and I've, I've, we've put a lot of thought into it, and I have a whole committee that helps me with this. Uh, the, there should be no statute of limitations when there's a violent death involved, no matter what area it's in, whether it's official misconduct, uh, wrongful death, uh, Fraudulent concealment, because all the people, if, if someone is corrupt in uh, law enforcement or a prosecutor's office, all they got to do is wait till the statute of limitations is up. That's all they got to do, fight you until the statute of limitations is up and they have no, they can't be held accountable. Wrongful death needs to be separated from uh, civil actions on medical malpractice and things like that where you do discovery. You don't do for you. You do discovery in those cases, and, and there's court orders that make them have to produce those those, those records. In, in our in, in a investigation, uh, when it's in our – the language in our state, state is, is that they have to produce the records when they can't prove it's up to the public burden of proof is on the public body. They have to be able to prove that there's an active and ongoing investigation. They can't just say it. They have to show documents and records to prove that there's an active and ongoing investigation in order to deny you the records. So ever since 2013, I've been receiving documents and records because 
They can't prove there's an active and ongoing investigation. Uh, when the burden of proof gets put back on them to prove it, then they ha- they have to prove it to the attorney gen- to the attorney general's office. And if they can't, now I don't know what, what the language is in other states. That's where it is in Illinois. The uh, and I keep referring back to the Freedom of Information Act because that's the key to getting do- enough records to follow wrongful death suit to begin with. You know, and I don't know what, I guess the trigger for that should be that you can't, the time clock doesn't start ticking. It doesn't start ticking at the time of death. It starts ticking at the time you're actually given records. Yeah, it's, yeah. How how can you really go forward with a wrongful death suit if you don't have any records, records and documents to support your case so i totally agree that the statute of limitations shouldn't start running until such time as you have been or not you personally and you know but people who are uh, the plaintiffs have the records they need to actually file and pursue the lawsuit that certainly makes sense uh I don't see how you can do it any other way. Uh, wrongful death is, uh, like I said, it's one statute, and it encompasses a lot of things like medical malpractice. That wrongful death statute should be separated from victims. The problem, one problem, another problem we came across is because they have federal funds to have victims advocates in every county courthouse police any large any size police department there's victims advocates to help victims weed through this process because they're not they're, they've never a lot of them have never even knew knew the process existed so when we went to the victim's advocate she said she could not help us no victim's advocate could help us until charges were filed well, you're still, because charges aren't filed, don't make you not a victim. There's 20-year cases going on that they know it's a murder. The charges haven't been filed. You know, the Victims Advocacy Program needs to be advocating for victims before charges are filed. Uh, that triggers a lot of things. Uh, I'm, a, I'm on the steering committee for Marcy's Law. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They, yeah. Since I Molly's Law passed, they, they asked me to be on the steering committee for Molly's, uh, for Marcy's Law. And Marcy's law doesn't consider you a victim by definition until there's charges filed. It's up to the state's attorney to determine, solely up to him to determine whether or not uh, this is a, uh, what kind of crime has been committed. So what happens is, is that Marcy's law, it helps a great deal for people after charges are filed, but it helps nothing before the charges are filed. And I also go even a step further, missing persons and suspicious uh, missing persons, they get no help either. They get no help through, you know, Marcy's Law doesn't help them. Victims' Bill of Rights in our state is written through Marcy's Law. It doesn't help me or any other victim that has has no charges filed, has no uh, missing persons either. So there needs to be some changes there, probably federally, that the victims' rights advocates, the victims' 
rights advocates need to be helping victims that where the charges haven't been filed yet. Yeah, I I wasn't aware of of that. And you know, another uh, I, I just want to uh, mention again because of the importance of it. Uh, your comment about records versus documents and how important it is in in your request for information that you don't limit yourself to documents and that you put records which as you say includes a lot more than uh, than just paper uh, such as uh, videos and audios and so on and so forth so that's uh, I think a very important uh, thing to remember for anybody that's that's in this situation. Uh, Delilah, do you have any questions or comments up to this point? Well, I just, you know, I commend these families who who find all of these things out at a time when. You know they should they should be receiving justice. They should be receiving a good investigation, and they find all these little obstacles, and and they're able to push through and do something about it, like Molly's Law and Marcy's Law, which I know came out of a an, another tragedy. And you know by going through the system piece by piece, uh, changes are being made. But is it is it going to be enough? And, and it may not affect your case, but you're doing it for the benefit of those who come after you, which, again, I feel is very commendable. Well, when this happened, I was on the Police and Fire Merit Board in my hometown. For, I was secretary of the board at that time, and I administered the testing to new police officers. So I had a, a little bit of advantage, more than more so than uh, the you know average person, because I knew I knew the who, what, when, where, and why, what questions to ask. And I realized people don't have that, you know. And I was also advised by good advisors. Uh, I mean, I, I so, sought out advisors, and that's what I would suggest to anybody: is go to these groups. Like, if it's a police officer involved domestic violence, then go to. Uh, behind the blue wall on Facebook, or I, went, I talked to her personally many hours. Uh, she helped advise me on what to do. Uh, there's also uh, uh, Citizens Against Homicide. I talked to them. They advised me. Uh, there's a lot of places that are uh, uh, nonprofit groups, nonprofit individuals even, that are willing to help. You have to seek out those people and get that advice. And and one thing, about, they, the best advice they gave me throughout this process, and I started early on. I I, I contacted a woman that wrote the book on uh, in out of Chicago, Diane Wentendorf. I contacted her. She wrote a book on police officer involved domestic violence, the um, the psychology behind them not doing the investigation properly and everything. And uh, I, I would I'd have to say that don't make a statement unless you have a record to support that statement because that's where they get you at. A lot of times police officers through their own uh, – it's inherent in their profession to put out information that isn't totally correct. So when they do get the right person, they can – they know they're telling – they know it's the right person because they're telling them things that nobody else knows. 
So they, they, they purposely put out false information to help investigate the case. So you can't take what they're telling you as being exactly right. So what you need to do is to get the records before you make statements. You know, toxicologies, uh, police reports, uh, pathologist report, uh, the video interviews, if you can get them, uh, the crime scene photos, everything, because you will get your credibility will get blown if you make a statement of something that doesn't end up being true, even though they set you up to do it, you know, they're, they're always, you know, the best way to resolve a case is, uh, if you don't want to resolve it, is run the credibility of the victim's family. And that's, you got to be careful of that. Uh, you you mentioned some the other day that, I, you know, if there's parents of murdered children, uh, I've, I've spoke with all these different groups before I ever really did a push on trying to get this resolved because I like to understand what the history is before I try to do the future. You know, Larry, I, I want to say that from talking with you both now and, and previously, it is obvious that you are very tenacious and, and fully committed uh, to what you're doing. And it it's unfortunate that it, it takes that type of tenacity when you're fighting the system or dealing with the system. Um, and I, I can understand why people, or many people, eventually give up because there's just so much that has to be done and the system seems to have roadblocks uh, for you at, at every turn. Uh, you, you conquer one, you overcome that, and then there's another one or two more and, and you just have to keep going and you can get worn down. A person can get worn down eventually and, and uh, you know, and, and so frustrated that, you just want to throw your hands up in the air and say, I've had it. I, I just can't do it anymore. Um, so I want to commend you for your uh, statuitiveness here that, that you're, you're pursuing all kinds of angles and, uh, and it's just uh, truly amazing. So uh, thanks for that. Well, as my wife would tell you, I spent hours and hours and years and years on it, and I don't intend to give up. Uh, it's a blatant, I believe my daughter's death is a blatant murder, and I believe it's a staged crime scene. And I've studied the documents well enough to make that statement and feel comfortable about making that statement that it's beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's never been brought to a grand jury yet. Uh, we, you know, we have some hashtags going on saying, let the jury decide. And I think that's the best thing you can say is uh, it's not up to the uh, one investigator or the prosecutor by, alone to say that, uh, that, a de you know, theorize what happened. It's up to them to present it to the grand jury and the grand jury order further investigation to get it accomplished. 
Um, that let's discuss a little more the status of of Molly's investigation or her investigation by the authorities. Um, what do you foresee happening uh, in the immediate future or, or long term, if you will? What uh, what do you think is going to develop? I, there, there's another law that we tried to get passed, uh, and it hasn't made it to the vote yet, but uh, the law is that there's money provided to victims' families when the investigative agencies are sitting on an open case and a cold case and not doing anything, and they can provide no evidence clear and convincing that they're doing anything, then the family should be allowed to go out and hire their own experts or investigators to come in and figure out what the issue is. Either hire them or the state provide that money. It was uh, through Victims' Compensation Fund. They tried to get a law passed that they would be up to $27,000 provided to victims' families to hire an attorney, their own attorney or their own investigator I say investigator, I mean expert investigators. I'm talking about people that know blood spatter and know how to reconstruct a crime scene. And, you know, some people are, because they're police officers, doesn't mean they know how to do that. Uh, that's uh, that's an expert that's done it hundreds of times that see can look at a crime scene and photos and tell what's going on, whereas uh, a lot of people that go out initially on an investigation don't really know how to do that. And so my question last year to the prosecutor and special prosecutor and, and a separate letter to the state police is, is what expert opinions have you used to analyze this evidence that we now have, that we have seen, you know, or that you have? They didn't answer that question. They just said it's an open case waiting on further evidence to surface and that they want justice just as much as I do. So, that's the status of the case, basically, is that it's an open investigation. Nothing's being done, evidently, and uh, they're waiting on it to come to them. So we're, if that law was passed, I believe it would help victims' families to bring in the experts that it takes to, uh, to resolve the case. I've actually... Uh, I have several experts on, on my committee, and I also have uh, experts, a group of experts that's analyzing the case right now. Uh, that They already have said it's murder. There's no doubt about it. It's murder. It's a staged crime scene. So I have to somehow get them to be able to discuss this with the state police and the prosecutor. And that avenue is not, you know, there's no avenue to do that right now that I know of. It's Well, it's, I went through exactly from from that piece. Uh, I've had a case that I'm working on uh, analyzed by independent experts, and they've all come to the same conclusion that the case is a homicide, Yet, there's no way to uh, to do anything with that information. Nobody wants to look at it. The, the police agency, oh, no, we do our own investigation. We don't rely on anybody else. And uh, it, it's just 
frustrating. I guess is a, extremely frustrating, and uh, it's it's really mind-boggling, actually. Uh, Larry, what happens uh, to people that don't have the financial resources? I know, like the wrongful death suits, can get very expensive. Uh, I don't know if they're pro bono, uh, maybe lawyers work pro bono that could be contacted or uh, or perhaps if they don't have the financial resources they, these victims are just basically out of the running when it comes to uh, lawsuits. Well, well, first of all the the victim has, the victim's family has to get proactive immediately as soon as, after, as, soon as they can. They can get past the funeral and the grief. Because uh, a lot of investigation wouldn't have been done in Molly's case had I not got proactive and 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 called the attorney general's office and the uh, domestic homicide, I mean uh, domestic violence hotline and different places to find out who I contacted to get this done. And through the attorney general's office, I was able to get in contact with a lieutenant colonel on the state police that forced them into doing the lab tests. They, I thought they had already done them. They told us they did. They told the newspapers they did. DNA, uh, fingerprints, uh, but I, after I got the records, I found out they weren't done until after this lieutenant colonel contacted them. So uh, an important thing to do is uh, push through higher, go higher, and try to push them into doing an investigation to begin with because there's a possibility they're not even doing the investigation, even though they're telling you that. You know, I have a newspaper report three days after Molly's death that they're waiting on lab test results or waiting on uh, DNA, they're waiting on fingerprints, they're waiting on all this, and now I got the records, and the first one was done in July, um, four <laughs> months after, four months after her death. So, what they're telling you is one thing. What what is really going on may be something different. So you need to, if they're telling you they they're waiting on lab tests, and go to your attorney general and have them check and make sure they're actually sent the lab tests off. Because uh, when you get it, to the point of getting those through FOIA two years later, you may find they never did them. This is extremely upsetting uh, information in, in the sense that when you throw your trust into these agencies and then find out that you've been misled. Um, anyway, uh, we're running out of time very quickly. I want to say again that... Um, if you want to uh, contact Larry, you can go through, you can private message him through uh, his Facebook pages or through, if, if you remember the Transparency Project, through there, through that uh, page. And Larry, thank you so much for for being for what you've done and being willing to help others. Uh, and please let us know if there are any updates in your case or the legislation or anything that uh, that we can update for our listeners? All right. Well, obviously, there's a lot of laws that need to be changed. Uh, that's the, I believe that's the main issue, that they're not written in favor of victims or written in favor of suspects, and that's not the way it should be. It should be equal. Okay. We're going to have to wrap it up right there, Larry. Thanks right. again. And uh, for listeners, thanks for being with us. And until next time, stay safe. All right, thank you.